Psalm 51 is the psalm we're going to do uh, this morning. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was in the dean's class and introduced uh, something that I'm personally wanting to become uh, more consistent in my prayer life, more consistent in my devotion life, is understanding the church's prayer book, the Psalms, and just having a better grasp of how the Psalms are used and how they're used in the whole counsel of God. Uh, they come center in our Bible, and I think they, they really tie in the law and the prophets, the gospels and the, apost- and the epistles in a, in a wonderful way. And that last time I talked about the Psalms really for the believer being our mother tongue. But for most of us, it's like learning a second language. And there is that sort of tension between that which ought to be our mother tongue in Christ, praying the Psalms, and learning a second language that may take some time for us to learn how to appreciate and how much it is an expression of the soul. And the Psalms are not put together in a systematic fashion, but they're not random either. There is a rhythm to the Psalms, a rhythm of of praise, a rhythm of pain. These are placed in juxtaposition, so that like Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, are placed side by side. And that kind of character is characteristic of how the Psalter is, is put together. Come on up. There's seats. I don't want people standing while I'm talking. Come on up. And uh, we still haven't opened in prayer. This is all intro. And uh, I would like to introduce my daughter, Kennerly, and son-in-law, Patrick. Uh, they serve a church in San Diego, and they're here visiting along with uh, our two-year-old grandson, Micah. So it's great to have them visiting with us. I would not have introduced them, but Victor Hansen said that I should, so I am. (laughs) And you pray the Psalms. I'm still introing, so come on in and find a seat. You pray the Psalms not just for yourself. You pray the Psalms for the global church. And I think that's really important to understand because somewhere in Christ's church on this globe, that psalm that is prayed has particular relevance. And I would say that in the course of your life, from beginning to end, at some point you can identify with each and every psalm. So it's only maybe a matter of time before that psalm connects with you. So we pray the psalms not just for ourselves, but for the global church, and we pray it over a lifespan. And in a way, I think we want to become familiar with the psalms. You recall I used the illustration the last time with the Feinbergs, John Feinberg being a three-degree theologian, but when his wife was... uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer, he was a total wreck and felt like he knew nothing, was in a crisis of faith. But Patricia, Patricia, who had no formal theological education whatsoever, but steeped in the Psalms, had the strength and resilience to really experience and go through that. 
So I commend the Psalms to you as I'm commending it to myself. I want a better handle on the Psalms. Psalm 51 is probably one of the better known Psalms. It is the Psalm of David, and Adam referred to the backstory of Psalm 51 in the message this morning. 2 Samuel 11 and 12 provide the kind of the narrative to the prayed out poetry of the 51st Psalm. So I've got you a handout, although many of you are doing a much better job bringing your Bibles, but I'm not counting on all of you doing that. And this is more effective than a device, I think. Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, as we open your word and we continue in your word throughout this morning, we thank you, Lord, for, your, for providing a place and a community of brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you. And we ask that you would help us by your spirit to understand the Psalms in a way that deepens our devotion to you, helps us in our relationship with you, that we might experience, heart, mind, and soul, your salvation. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. Amen. So Psalm 51, the left column on your handout. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. You notice that two characters meet in this psalm. A very shaken, repentant person, the psalmist, and a loving and compassionate God. Have mercy on me, O God. It begins with a cry. I'd love to know how the psalmist would have us intone that, because it is something that's not just said, but it's heard. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Now, if the narrative subscription for this psalm holds true, we know that this kind of cry for the mercy of God was long in coming for David, Uh, at least nine months. Nine months that uh, his uh, sleeping with Bathsheba, impregnating her, and then conspiring to kill her husband Uriah in a particularly pernicious way, sitting on that. In other Psalms, like Psalm 32, describe maybe how David felt during that time. So for nine months, for a year, this man after God's own heart has been a wreck, and yet probably showing an exterior of normality so that no one would have picked up on it. How human nature is able to do that is is really amazing. How you can pretend to be normal when you are not anything but. So I remember in family devotions going through the second Samuel 11 and 12 with our family. And I think Jeremiah was nine at the time. He's our oldest. He's what now, 36? Long time ago. Um, And we were going through this passage, reading it in family devotions, and Jeremiah just blurted out, 
is this the same guy who killed Goliath? And there's something just really almost impossible about this. And it kind of puts every one of us in this room on notice, doesn't it? Notice the mys in the first verses that we read. My transgressions, my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. My, 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 repeated five times. David is owning the sin. I think in that moment that Adam referred to in the morning message, that moment when Nathan said, you are the man, finally, at last, all the defenses are gone. And David really does have nothing to say. In the spirit, Nathan has been used to expose that sin in a way that finally hit home. His cover has been blown. And so by the time he gets to this expression, he is just flat out owning it. And this is how we have to repent. So no excuse, no shading it, no excusing it, no trying to cover up part of it. My transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. Transgressions, violation of the covenantal law, iniquity, um, violating that which God has uh, established as true sin, being wayward and missing the mark. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. This is a plea, a plea for forgiveness. Against you and you only have I sinned. And I think we misinterpret it if we feel here that somehow David is not thinking that he sinned against Uriah or that he didn't sin against Bathsheba or he didn't sin against Joab or he didn't sin against the other soldiers that died because uh, Uriah was set up to be killed. I think he's bottom lining it here. Against you and you only have I sinned, and that includes everybody who belongs to you as well. And done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now that's the most kind of theologically oriented one-liner that's in the psalm. The, the, the rest is passionate. This to me is somewhat there is a kind of theological axiom that's planted in the, in the beginning of this repentance for David. So you are right in your verdict, justified when you judge, and you're going to see that line again. That's why I've underlined it. That line is going to appear in the New Testament in a really critical place. Verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Now put those two lines together. It's kind of a paradox. I'm sinful at birth, and we do believe in real depravity. Every aspect of our being depraved, steeped in sin, Original evil, 
I'm sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. I think this is an extraordinary um, depravity, dignity kind of statement here. I'm steeped in sin, but you expect faithfulness. That's not a frustration, that's a delight. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Aren't we, we're a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of being. Really depraved, but made in God's image. This is why we need the cross to reconcile those two extremes and bring them into harmony with God. The restoration process begins in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Cleanse me with hyssop. In a phrase, what might that suggest? Might point back to Mount Sinai and the Passover, the hyssop blood sprinkled. I think I've told you before that in talking about the Passover with a lawyer friend in New York City in uh, Burger Heaven, not your best New York restaurant. <laughs> and we were talking, we, it had come up in the morning sermon, and uh, he said, you know what happens when you take the hyssop branch sprinkled with blood and you do it on the doorpost, and then you, you do it above, and literally, he's standing in the restaurant showing me this, carried away with, I think, his truth. And he said, you know what you got? You got the sign of the cross in the doorway when you sprinkled it. Mark, that's not a deep theological point, so don't get real upset with me on that. <laughs> but it's an image that stays with me, that points back to the Passover, Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. You think of, come let us reason together, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, Isaiah 1.18. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. This is a person who walks into the doctor's office with stage four cancer, and he wants to walk or she wants to walk out of that doctor's office completely healthy. We want here full forgiveness, full restoration, we don't want any part of the disease. We want to be clean. We want to be free. We want to be able to now serve. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Gil, can you identify with this? I don't know. How many of you have broken bones? There's nothing like bone pain. I broke my humerus in half. It took three operations. I have 16 screws and two plates in this arm. It works fine now. And that's the image that David is acknowledging here. Crushed bones now dancing. Completely healed. You can dance on the bones now. Hide your face from my sins which is kind of ironic because the acknowledgement of sin has just totally open, transparent here. And yet, okay, Lord, with the forgiveness, now please kind of look away. You've forgiven. Let's move on. 
and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me, blot out was said at the first verse, create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Who do you think of when you think of the Holy Spirit being taken from them? You think of King Saul. David witnessed that. He knew the devastating results of God's Spirit being removed from a person. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Repentance, first six verses. Restoration, 7 through 12. Yeah, there's an art, isn't there, to the expression of forgiveness? I mean, the psalmist, in a beautiful way, both describes his brokenness before God as well as his desire for what God should do. He prays by the mercy of God to do for him. That's really important. It's important how you express it, um, how you put words to music, words to prayer, that we take the time to do that. We all know, and we, we need not spend any time on talking about a, a, a culture that's so distracted, so incapable of being quiet, uh, so quick when it comes to prayer. The psalmist takes time to articulate this. And, and this is, you know, I joke about the fact that writing is therapy for me. It's a lot cheaper than a counselor. Well, the psalms teach us that on a, an entirely different non-joking level. They're taking the time to articulate the prayer. And I would suggest not just find a prayer. Not just find a prayer but learn from the Psalms and the Book of Common Prayer to pray, to articulate this, to verbalize it, to put it into words, to be by yourself praying out loud. Both the Psalms, Book of Prayer, and the prayers that you compose. Verse 13, we move from repentance and restoration to renewal, then I will treat, teach transgressors, transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. He wants that full restoration, teaching those who are lost to find the same mercy that he has experienced. A friend, a pastor friend in San Diego that Virginia and I know really well, um, a person that would preach at first press sometimes when I would be away on vacation. He was PCA, I was PCUSA, so it was not ever reciprocated because I was part of the liberal mainline and that didn't work. But uh, in any case, Dan would pre uh, preach at first press and really good preacher, a Marine who... Um, was a chaplain on uh, the reserves and, uh, and yet full-time pastor in, in San Diego. And he had an affair. Um, just a really horrible experience for his family. I remember Virginia and I got together with him and we sat across Barb and Dan. 
uh, across the table in a lunch place to talk it out. And Dan looked square at me and he said, I'd rather spend 15 minutes with this other woman than, than an hour with Barb. The pain that was in Barb's face was just, I mean, it, I felt just like punching him in the face as hard as I could. I just, anger welled up within me how he could do this. Virginia would get together with uh, Barb in, for seven years, walking and running with her. She insisted she would not divorce him. He went on to be the chaplain for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a really high position, globe-trotting all over the world, looking at bases and analyzing other chaplains. She would not divorce him. And about eight years into it, his life crashed. And he realized what a horrible mess he had made of his life. He missed all three of his daughter's weddings. And Barb slowly, very slowly, they'd get together for dinner. Then a month later, dinner again. It was a very slow, painful process. He was devastatingly repentant. He really was. Could not understand how foolish and how hard-hearted and how bitter he had been. It took 10 years. One of the advantages of getting old is to see these stories. Because some of these stories take a long time to unfold. And sometimes with some people you keep saying, well, the last chapter hasn't been written. The last chapter hasn't been written. I talked with Dan yesterday. I said to him about this psalm, I said, you know, I don't know anybody who's probably gone lower in it and higher in it than you have. And he said, well, I know I've gone lower in it. The real story for me in a lot of that is Barb. Uh, and now the families get together. The three daughters married with grandchildren. Uh, it's a, just a remarkable story of forgiveness and redemption and restoration. And after a three-year process, Dan was allowed back into the presbytery and preached at his old church. And his old church is the church where he's a member. And the pastor ministers to him, and Dan has spoken in the church. He's preached. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from my guilt of bloodshed, O God, for you are, for, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. These next few verses I don't think have to do so much with religious hypocrisy as they do with the realization that the whole ceremonial, sacrificial, priesthood, temple, tabernacle, all of that is inadequate. It won't work. And somehow David acknowledges this, which I think is gospel truth, that this is all what Hebrews will tell us comes to an end. It didn't work. It was always a pointer. 
It was always a pointer to what Jesus Christ would do on the cross. It would never be an end in itself. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, and this is a really good kind of brokenness. There's bad kinds of brokenness. There's personality disorders. There's uh, mental illnesses. There's all sorts of things that is a, a brokenness that we really want to resist with every fiber of our being, with every way that we can minister. But this is the kind of brokenness that I wish all of us had. It's essential. This is the kind of brokenness that really lays us out before the mercy of God so that we can go on, so we can go forward. And then this blessedness of brokenness extends to the whole city. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Repentance, restoration, renewal, but now. And this to me is the most exciting part of it. Um, that line that you see in verse 4, okay, you are right in your verdict, and you're always just when you judge. Now, you know where that shows up in the New Testament? I think I have it down there, so it's not much of a question. But it's Romans chapter 3. It's just a line that's inserted in Romans 3. Now, you'll remember Romans 3 because of Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? Well, I think Paul gives us a very good idea of how he would preach 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and Psalm 51 by his inclusion of this one line in the third chapter of Romans. God, you are right when you judge. You're right when you send down the verdict. Now, this, and I wouldn't have gotten this on my own, but Richard Hayes, uh, the dean of Duke until he stepped down because of pancreatic cancer, describes this impact of this one line in Romans. You get the picture, Romans 1 is all about how guilty the pagans are for not turning to God. Romans 2 is driving home that point that those under the law and those without the law are yet guilty before God and need His grace and mercy. Well, what a better picture than David, the man after God's own heart, who everybody would think is about the best of the best, understanding that he, like any pagan, was just as much in the need of God's mercy and God's grace. So Jew and Gentile, all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. David, David of all people, needs desperately the mercy of God just like any pagan does. That's what Paul's preaching by pulling that one line into Romans. I think he's opening up the whole narrative of Nathan confronting David. Paul is confronting Jew and Gentile alike. You need the mercy of God. You need the grace of God. So often when the apostles pull in a line, 
they are not proof texting. They're pulling in the whole counsel of God to make that, I think, very impressive point. So there you have, I think, a very powerful psalm. Repentance, restoration, and renewal. Any questions you have? We've got about five minutes. probably know the answer, but of an instant question. Um, once we're saved, we receive the Holy Spirit, and then it, but it, um, and he says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Right. And that's a scary prospect, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, I do you think that... on that? I should understand it, but I don't. <laughs> well, no. Um, we used to sing a song of praise. Virginia, do you remember it? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Is that the one that says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me? Uh, and we would have people in our church in Bloomington, Indiana, that would refuse to sing that song because they felt that the New Testament truth of God's for, uh, uh, forever abiding Spirit of God would never leave you. And I think that is New Testament truth. I mean, Psalm 51 isn't at that stage with Acts 2 and the giving of the Holy Spirit. So we're not there yet. And the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament descends upon people, it would seem, in a special, unique kind of capacity, and it can be of short duration. And in a way, the New Testament fulfillment is that that's going to be completely given over to the church, to the body of Christ, to the people of God. So in one sense, technically, that's a qualified, nuanced verse, I think, in Psalm 51 for us as Christians. Good way to identify that. Good to identify that. Andrew? You know, using Psalm 51 as a template and going back to your friend in San Diego that you were trying to minister to, even in the midst of you being angry, how do you walk with, with somebody in light of Psalm 51 who is going through that very difficult time um, and is even being outwardly defiant, how do we as Christians minister, minister to those who are in defiant brokenness? Well, you know, we can't do the work of the Spirit of God in somebody's defensive, lack of sensitive consciousness but I do think we can point them to the Psalms. Um, I might, in a person like that, say, well, are you experiencing Psalm 32? And pray Psalm 32, that when I remain silent, uh, let's look at Psalm 32. I'm not going to quote it well enough. Psalm 32. I guess, Andrew, the, the short answer to that would be, persistence and patience. And uh, I think Virginia was really much more effective with Barb than I was with Dan. But I think Dan had to play out, apparently, his evil for quite a long time before he came to the end of himself. Um,
Oh, Barb is, is, and that's a point I'll be able to make at Dan's memorial service. Uh, uh, Dan is suffering from a brain tumor. The diagnosis was after his repentance, after the restoration, which I think is just wonderful because everybody would think that it was just because he got a brain tumor. But, um, and he's probably in, uh, well, he, he's, he's lost mobility. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really difficult now for them. And Barb is 24-7 with this. Um, you know, the... the What do you mean you never do this? Well, can I interject? Anyone else that Virginia could answer? <laughs> aren't, aren't we all guilty of hiding behind Dan? That we're all Dan. Mm-hmm. And that it's easy for these big overt sins that overwhelm us, but we're all hiding behind Dan because none of us are justified when we judge. And that brings us to the Apostle Paul in Romans. Where the ark of redemption, uh, the ark of repentance and redemption is outlined for all of us there, and he pulls in Psalm 51. So all of us are in Psalm 51. All of us are in Romans 3:23. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and it's but by the mercy and grace of God. But if if I were getting real pastoral with you. In a room this size, there's bound to be a kind of sense of distance from this psalm in some people's life that we, I don't want to go there. And I would just encourage you to go there, to go there. The blessing that will come as a result of the restoration is worth the pain of the repentance. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen.